Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and I'm pumped to start another episode of Year 2000 Fix. I have a few thank yous to issue before we start. First, a big thank you to Tony Ortega for not only being a spectacular guest on the last show, but for also plugging the show on his blog. That plug is the only plausible explanation for the show getting a near 2,000 listens from people all over the world. And how fitting, 2,000. Hello to my Canadian, Australian, and Scandinavian fans. Don't worry, my head's going to deflate in just a sec. I expect this episode's listen count to go back to the standard 20 to 40 people, whom I also owe a big thank you because you've been very kind and supportive throughout this podcast's entire run. My last thank you goes to my cousin Ariel for agreeing to be this week's guest. I gotta warn you, these upcoming episodes that are going to be released close to the November presidential election, they're going to get pretty political. But this time around, Ariel and I are just going to talk about a much less serious topic. But of course, one that screams early 2000s. There are two types of people in this world. There's the kind of person who's going to listen to this piano piece provided by my brother Dylan, whom I also thank you, and react with the, hmm, that's nice. And there's the other kind of person who will hear that and shriek, oh my god, the OC is on, California, here we come. Creator Josh Schwartz brought the primetime soap opera to TV on one fateful night in August 2003. Even though the primetime soap opera was thought to be an extinct genre, Schwartz, and by extension the millions and millions of easily attracted fans, proved otherwise. It didn't matter if there was already Beverly Hills 90210, Melrose Place, Party of Five, and Dawson's Creek. It didn't matter if Orange County natives claimed no one from there called the county by its abbreviation. The show grabbed our attention, and we couldn't get enough. Even if you were never a fan of the OC, you'll still like my talk with Ariel about the show's deserved place in pop culture, its commentary on early 2000s United States politics, and the influence the show still has in the so-called platinum age of TV. Side note, if you are a fan of the show and want to hear Ariel and I cover the specific moments of the show we love, I will be releasing a bonus Encore episode soon. So let's get to it. Instead of starting the show off with, welcome to year 2000 fix, I'm going to say, Welcome to the OC, bitch! So I'm here with my cousin, Ariel, who I'm so happy decided to join me and talk about a pretty good TV show. It's a great TV show. I think it's one of the most iconic TV shows of our generation. A little something, a little something called The O.C. (laughs) Yeah, a show called The O.C., in case you haven't heard about it. (laughs) What was your thoughts that this tweet, which is, Someone responded to me the other day that The O.C. was their fave guilty pleasure, which reminds me why I hate that phrase. Rewatching it, it's incredibly smart, really hilarious, and still holds up extremely well as satire of privileged white people. It's a good show. And that person's name is Ira Madison III. I fully agree with that on two parts. First of all, I don't really believe in the phrase guilty pleasure. Like, if you like something, you like it. But also, it's a well-done show. 
it satires them and lets you into a world that most of us don't have an eye into in a way that makes it somehow relatable and entertaining. Yeah, and you were sort of like a, what's the word I'm thinking of, like a patient zero for the whole show because you were watching it as it originally aired from 2003-2007 on Fox. Do you remember where you were August 5th, 2003? Were you watching from the, the pilot or like did it take a few episodes or how, how'd that all work out? I think it took a few episodes. My older sister was into the show. So in 2003, I was in fifth grade. So I was a little bit young to be watching this. And I think my mom probably didn't want me watching it at first, but I wanted to do everything my sister was doing. So I saw her and her friends watching it and I would just sort of walk into the room while they were watching it. And I think I probably started watching regularly either end of season one or season two. It wasn't the very beginning that I was watching live. But once you caught an episode or two or realized what the show was about. Oh, I was instantly hooked. I think it was mostly getting my sister and mom to allow me to watch it live with them. To clarify, this is a teen soap opera. It airs on Fox from 2003 to 2007. This was very much a time you were either watching TV live or you weren't seeing it at all. At best, you were waiting for the summer after to get the DVDs, which I had a babysitter. She did have those. Yeah, we had the season one DVDs. And so that's why I just want to first go over what is the show if the person listening to this, they've never seen it. I'm going to first work into just this soundbite from the 2003 episode of VH1's I Love the New Millennium. The OC is kind of like, you know, the Orange County version of 90210 minus Luke Perry. The twist is it's in the next county over. Just to make it all super clear for everyone. It's about Ryan Atwood. He's a kid from a broken home in Chino, California. In the opening few moments of the show, he gets busted for stealing a car. His brother gets arrested. And what kind of changes his whole life is when he's in juvie, he's approached by his public defender, Sandy Cohen. Ryan, Sandy Cohen. Sandy Cohen takes a liking to him. Like Sandy thinks, oh, I was this kid when I grew up in the Bronx and he could have a bright future because I've seen his test scores, but he just needs the, the right guidance and not to be a criminal. Your test scores, 98th percentile in your SAT ones. Right, 98th percentile, if you start going to class, are you thinking about college? <laughs> Sandy eventually is able to convince his wife Kirsten and his nerdy son Seth, who's Ryan's age, to have the family adopt Ryan. And they, Ryan lives in the pool house in the Cohen's upscale Newport Beach home in Orange County. And the riches, they kind of come from Kirsten Cohen. She works for her father's powerful real estate development group. This is a nice car. Any kind of lawyer made money. No, we don't. My wife does also of note is that Ryan takes a liking to the troubled girl next door, Marissa Cooper. Marissa Cooper is this character who's like an it girl. She faces relationship troubles with her current boyfriend, Luke, who's like all jealous that now Marissa's like all into Ryan. Marissa has to deal with the fact that her father, Jimmy, is like losing their family's money through fraudulent investments and that her mother, Julie, is trying to get Marissa like institutionalized. Ryan, he befriends Seth, kind of like becomes a mentor to him and helps him become more confident so he can get his crush, who's also Marissa's best friend, Summer Roberts. Summer invited me. Us. Uh, she, she asked for you, actually. That makes absolutely no sense, but yes, we should go. 
did I miss anything? Like, is that all you need to know if you're, like, watching the first episode or so? Yeah, I think that's pretty much the pilot. Like, a lot happens in the first season. As I was going back and reviewing it, I was like, I could have sworn this was, like, a season three plot point. Like, how is all of this happening all at the same time? But I think that's a good introduction to the characters. First season has, like, 9.7 million people watching. I'm pretty sure the show, it's, like, targeted after teen girls that, I mean, they were expecting to be, like, the biggest fans. But Kate Donovan, who played Marissa Cooper's dad, Jimmy, he said that men were initially in denial of watching the show. These days, people are pretty open about male, female, whatever. They're pretty good about, like, no, I just love the show's meta humor, the snark, the the mixing Jewish and Christian holidays. It's just high quality in the drama and the comedic moments. It's the quintessential teenage dramedy to me with like the low lows and the like really funny points all in the same episodes. And like, what's not to like? There's something for everyone. (laughs) There's like really hunky Ryan Atwood. There's Seth dropping his funny lines. There's like, you really want to know, you really care about Marissa and hope like she comes out of everything in one piece. The adults had like their own plot line. It didn't matter if there was things we could predict like will they, won't they relationships or are they going to come out okay after they created a big crisis. We still wanted to see it anyway. And Mm -hmm. Seth um, has this line in the third season I liked, which is, is it my fault that most of our half-baked adolescent schemes go hopelessly awry and my dad has to bail us out? (laughs) Which I think (laughs) it's like the whole show. (laughs) Is it my fault that most of our half-baked adolescent schemes goes hopelessly awry and my dad has to bail us out? Uh, Usually, yeah. (laughs) I think that sums up the whole show, yeah. Do you agree with my theory that what maybe part of the love was coming from, especially for its younger audience, is that it's portraying a version of high school that preteens think totally exists. Like, they think like, hey, I'm in middle school right now, and then a year or so from now, I'm gonna be in high school, and I'm totally gonna be like the Marissa Cooper of my community. Yeah, I think that is the appeal, but I think the appeal is also that like, that does exist for a select few people. That's the appeal of 90210 and Gossip Girl. It's like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. But like there are people in the world who live these lives. Maybe not quite this dramatically, but they do live these lives. Yeah, this is what stood out for me, or at least this is, and I admit, like, I have a bit of an advantage. Is like, okay, the first time I saw the entire series, I was 21, so I didn't have the mindset I would have had I watched it when I would have been, like, nine when the show originally premiered. <laughs> so, yeah, you're talking about, like, why you might have been too young to watch. No, I probably, a lot would have gone over my head. But, like, this is the impression I get, just, like, as a 21-year-old watching this. It's that high school is for tough kids and tough kids only. I mean, look, Ryan, he's steals a car. He talks smart to Sandy Cohen about social security busting. He has to fight off his mom's abusive boyfriend after um, he tells him like to stop freeloading yeah. off her. Don't worry about your own kids, AJ. Instead of freeloading off my mom. Hey! This is a guy you know has like, he grew up with like tougher kids you see whenever they visit Chino. There's actually one line I really like, which is in the pilot episode. Sandy Cohen drives Ryan to their big, rich house, and Ryan's in the car, and Sandy hesitates for a second to leave Ryan alone in the car, and Ryan says, it's no fun if the key's in the car. (laughs) Yeah. You know, why don't you wait here for a minute? I'll be back. It's no fun if the key's in the car. 
that's almost immediately followed by a very interesting scene. It's when Ryan first meets Marissa. He steps out of the car. He starts smoking because tough kids, like tough teenage kids, they smoke. Hey, can I bum a cigarette? Marissa Cooper says, who are you? And what does Ryan reply? Whoever you want me to be. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck does that mean? Who are you? Whoever you want me to be. With the cigarette hanging out of his mouth for dramatic effect. So, what are you doing here? Seriously. I stole a car. In the pilot, the key part of Act 2 and 3 is Ryan taking Seth, who we get. He's introverted. Like, he plays video games. We're supposed to think the guy will never have a chance with the woman and has, like, a tame, sheltered life, which maybe there's some truth to. And Seth's whole world is open when Ryan takes them to this party where teens are drinking and getting crazy. And again, all cheesy we still love it. We want to know what's going to happen and what happens when Seth gets himself roughed up by a bunch of these water polo jerks and Ryan has to step in and save him. Put him down. Then they both get their ass beat and they wake up kind of hungover at the Cohen's place. And I just wanted to say about Marissa, I'm pretty sure she is an OG no-log. Yeah, not like other girls. Absolutely she is. I'm sorry, uh, Avril Lavigne doesn't count as punk. Oh yeah? Well, what about the cramps? Stiff little fingers. The clash. Sex pistols. It's a punk, huh? I'm angry. But since she was so OG, she's everything I wanted to be, and she's the most toxic human being. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think the key appeal, the only reason we have to like her or to be like, yeah, whatever, rich princess Marissa, they have to establish she's deeper than the shallow Newport friends. And Summer, yeah. her friend, who wasn't even originally intended to be a major character, Summer is supposed to be like what you think Marissa is. Like, she's shallow, she just, like, hot boxes and parties and, like, only cares about shopping. But thankfully, they let Summer develop into the great character we knew her to be. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's what it is initially. And while the rest of the community is all quick to judge Ryan solely because he's from Chino, because, like, that's the biggest sin in Orange County, Marissa is the one who says, you don't know him. And, like, there's this implication yeah. that, like, oh, Marissa and Ryan are going to save each other from, like, their worst selves. Have you ever really talked to him, though? Because he's not really a bad boy. Yeah, I mean, you end up rooting for them as individuals, not just together. Because, like, she shows her soft, caring side, and then she's just so deeply troubled that you can't help but, like, really hope she can, like, make it through all of her issues. Spoiler alert, she does not. She does not. <laughs> they just keep getting worse. <laughs> yeah. Here are a few other bullet points I made just of things that were like, okay, this is not any version of high school I experienced, yeah. nor do I think it's what most people did, unless they were no. as 1% as the characters of the OC. Characters spend all their times at rich parties and fundraisers and lavish trips. There's the debutante ball. We did not grow up with debutante balls, and it's, like, already weird that girls' fathers give them away to be debuted by, like, other guys. I actually did grow up in a town where they had debutante balls. 
part of the reason I really love this show is that I really related to Ryan's otherness being in this really wealthy town. So the town I grew up in has a lot of really rich old money families in it. And that is not the family I grew up in, but that is the town I grew up in. So we did have things like guest house parties and debutante ball cotillion and the families who were rich enough to belong to the country clubs would get dolled up in white dresses and all the popular kids would go party in the hotel that night. And these were things I was not a part of, but like to me, they really existed. And so it was really interesting interesting to see Ryan be like oh my god this is crazy because I was also like oh my god this is a lot (laughs) well also the obvious thing your last name's Cohen my last name is Cohen and was that um (laughs) I don't know what the Jewish families where you grew up was it like common for you it's like oh I'm the only family who has a Hanukkah menorah around the holidays instead of the Christmas tree yeah there's not that many Jewish families There was no Christmaka because that was an OC thing. But yeah, I mean, I didn't celebrate Christmas and I was probably like even out of my Jewish friends, I think I was the only house that didn't have a Christmas tree. But yeah, as a Cohen, I really loved that Cohen representation that the show brought. You allude to this or alluded to where this might fit in with what you grew up with, but I still just want to go through a few more bullets, which is teenagers of the OC, they have expensive Coke habits. True or false? Yes. I believe that happened at my school as well. Next one, I'm pretty sure is a no-duh, but it still is probably over-dramatized on the OC, which is like, teens have dramatic sex moments with their boyfriends or girlfriends. I think everything's a little less dramatic than the OC, but I think if you take out the, like, almost dying in Mexico and getting into fistfights every other day, the drug use and the parties and all that was very real. The experience of my high school, not necessarily my high school experience kind of just read my mind for the next one which is it's apparently school tradition for teenagers to go to ragers in tijuana far from their parents where they drink and go to strip clubs and get into fights and the kids do something similar in season one where they go to oliver his place in palm springs yeah i mean people would go to like family second homes i think that was a thing There was no, like, Tijuana tradition at my high school. I also wouldn't have been privy to any of those kinds of things, but there was baffling amounts of money being thrown around for sure. Yeah, and then we kind of get to the whole mystique of Marissa. Like, why is Misha Barton, her most famous role, is playing this character on this show? I mean, Marissa was not without her kind of controversy. She spends ninth grade with anorexia. 10th grade, she's busted shoplifting. She smokes and she nearly dies in an overdose. Then season two, I think the alcoholism really picks up. Like, she just keeps going. (laughs) There's just more around every turn. I think I only wanted to end, like, this whole bullet list just with, like, one more comment about the 10th episode. It's really funny. So the will they, won't they with Ryan and Marissa is finally resolved with, like, Marissa eventually, like, leaving her boyfriend Luke, going to Ryan, who she admits to those around her she's been secretly in love with. Ryan has to take her out on a date, but he's very overwhelmed because, like, he's never actually been on a date. But what Seth is able to figure out is he's had sex multiple times over while Seth was still playing Magic the Gathering. And of course, Ryan has um, a good retort, which is, you still play Magic. So when you lost your virginity, I was was playing Magic the Gathering. You still play Magic? Yeah, but not as much. Yeah, I think that's the appeal of the show, though, is the dichotomy between the different lives. These, quote, 
teenagers, quote, are leading. I think it's good that for every Ryan or Marissa moment, we can kind of laugh about and go like, oh God, that would never happen, or that's over-dramatized, or they're glamorizing something that really isn't what the show says it is. There's a character like Seth who balances it, or is like, wait, what the hell is going on? I'm sure you want to talk more about this, but that's the best part of the show is how self-aware it is, and how much it's willing to like make fun of itself. And so I think that really lightens up the dramatic moments, is having the Seths to be there to like say kind of what we're thinking of the like wait this is your life (laughs) you're going now welcome to a life of insecurity and paralyzing self-doubt yeah and it kind of set the groundwork for shows like 30 rock arrested development where there's this self-referential humor that you see in shows in the 21st century so in the oc there's summer as we get to know her we know she's really into the teen soap opera the valley where there are plot lines that parallel the oc and summer will make comments like oh the valley season two is being criticized for not being as good as season one cough or that they portray the lead of the valley who was portrayed by Colin Hanks as being this like really arrogant stuck up kid. Don't they even take that a step further? Because the OC spawned the Laguna Beach and the Hills spinoffs. That was how those got their start. And then I think the Valley ended up having a reality show spinoff within the OC that was supposed to be like Laguna Beach. They're showing a marathon of Sherman Oaks, the real Valley. So What's that? Mm, Apparently the Valley. It's got its own reality show knockoff. And you know, Why watch the angst of fictional characters when you can watch real people in contrived situations? Yeah, and that's exactly the point, is the show portrayed Orange County as such an exciting or interesting place that in real life what happens is, okay, teen soap operas, primetime soap operas, people want to watch those. ABC decides, okay, we'll greenlight this Desperate Housewives show. And then you get shows like... Mm -hmm. Um, the Real Housewives of Orange County or Laguna Beach. That was the Hill spinoff. And it's because this show was so big, so grand that Orange County, it ain't LA, but people want to know what goes on in it, whatever it is they show in those shows. Yeah, I think this show really opened up the whole Orange County market, which I know Arrested Development also had some self-referential jokes about. But it also sort of set the precedent for the overly dramatized teen soap opera. Like, I know there was 90210 and, like, Dawson's Creek, kind of, but I feel like the OC really, like, brought that all to the next level. And then we got the, like, Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars and Vampire Diaries and all my favorite shows. No, and that that is the significance and why it's, like, really important to see, like, this was the top of the market and this is what everything has to live up to or at least bow down and gratitude and there's no stopping the people who want to reach out to that same audience thanks for meeting me well it's not like i had any choice all your phone calls and emails to block you from my buddy list you're so incessant and i mean the oc being a show that started in 2003 i thought now would be like kind of a good time to just go down the list of like okay this is what was laughably dated about the show first is the character's ages Benjamin McKenzie plays Ryan Atwood, who's supposed to be 15 or 16 when we first see him in season one. He looks 35. Yeah. Oh my god, he's old. (laughs) He's an old 25. I'm 25. I did not look like Ryan Atwood. (laughs) You see me in a wife beater right now. I would not even come close to acting like I'm a 15, 16 year old who gets to live in the pool house. 
Adam Brody, who played Seth, and then Rachel Bilson, who played Summer, they were both actually the same age. They were 21. So they were a little older than their characters, but maybe that's a little more excusable than a 25-year-old. Mm -hmm. The weird part is that Marissa Cooper is played by Misha Barton, who's actually 17. And I think it was only the she second was? time around. Yeah, she's 17. And it was only the second time around that I'm like, oh, that is kind of weird that Benjamin McKenzie looks as old as he does. Yeah, I was gonna say that's weird that they're having like sex scenes. Yeah, and he's hooking up with like when an he, actual 17 year old. He is 25 and he looks 35 and she's very much in high school. <laughs> you see that like pubescent face, like she totally looks different like in season two. She's 17 and I mean, look, she had been acting for a while and like she seemed right for the part, but that's such a weird contrast. Mm -hmm. The show's view on homosexuality, a little dated. Absolutely. The reason Luke, the water polo bully jerk, goes from beating up Ryan and Seth to like, oh, hey, you guys are my best friends, is because we find out in the middle of season one, when Ryan and Luke are supposed to partner for a class project, they accidentally walk in on Luke's dad hooking up with another man. And that leads to Luke's parents getting divorced. And everyone makes fun of Luke at school, even the people he thought were his friends, because haha, your dad is gay and the only people who look after him are Ryan, Marissa, Seth, Summer. Mm -hmm. I think what was sort of troubling for me is, okay, that's nice. They're the kids who are, like, looking out for Luke. Is they keep saying this is all very hard on Luke. And I can understand that in that, like, oh, Luke, he has to deal with the fact that his parents are getting a divorce and his dad had to be dishonest about being gay. But they kind of make it like that's more important than, oh, his dad had to repress his sexuality and is now, like, yeah. being chased with, like, pitchforks out of the town. Totally. I think that's absolutely a dated plot line but i think it's an accurate to the times plot line that is one of the things that dates the show and i'm really glad that like that's not at least in my experience and the interactions i have that's not how those kinds of things are handled anymore and that's not how that plot line would be handled if that show was aired today but yeah absolutely when i was in high school gay was like the go-to insult that people would use like that was like the worst thing you could say it was just horrible I do have in my notes, it's like, yeah, this is 2003, 2004, gay marriage wasn't even legal in, like, most of the mm -hmm. country. But, like, I guess at this point it's, like, yeah, dated in the sense that we would never see it these days, but, yeah, maybe this was accurate of the time. Kids at school, they're not only not nice to Luke or shun him for having a gay dad, they actually harass him. Yeah. Okay, this is slightly funny just because I have to explain this well. For the longest time, my laptop, its speakers blew out before I finally got it fixed. But what would happen is anytime there's low bass notes, the computer would make this buzz or this sound if I had the volume too loud. For perspective, you know that like sound that happens when you power a Mac, that uh sound yeah <laughs> okay even that would make my computer buzz so i'm watching the oc just on my laptop i'm like cooking dinner and like kind of half watching and it's the scene i think it's the very same episode luke learns his dad is gay he and ryan are out on like they're just talking kind of venting to each other on the baseball field two kids come up to them to harass luke one of them says, didn't mean to interrupt your date, like, as an insult. And then my computer just fucking smoked because it's that <laughs> because the show plays this dramatic low bass music like, holy shit, this kid just implied Ryan and Luke are gay. Justice is about to be served. 
<laughs> Is there a problem? Nah, dude. No problem at all. Didn't mean to interrupt your date. It's like, get ready. <laughs> and it's like, oh man, you thought they were going to take this shit lying down? <laughs> Other dated lines, the Nana, the name for Sandy Cohen's mother, hates visiting California and says, I hate the sunshine, I hate the ocean, I hate Schwarzenegger. <laughs> that's who was in charge of the state at the time. Yeah, that specifically dates it. Yeah, Julie, Julie Cooper is said to have blocked Luke from her buddies list. And to explain that one, Luke, Marissa's ex-boyfriend, he feels distant from the group. So he ends up fucking Marissa's mother. Yeah, it's a whole thing. She cries over it. The guy she lost her virginity to slept with her mom. It's a lot. It's a scandal and Ryan knew and didn't tell her. Please, Marissa, it's not what you think. Oh, is that what she told you to tell me? That it's all in my head? That I'm crazy? It's not her fault, really. Just get out of here. Just Just go. Now. Marissa really goes through it. I think there's even a Friendster reference in season one. And then in season two, Seth has a comic book that's viewable on Verizon Vcast. And there's another reference to... (laughs) Yeah, there's another reference to Netflix, but they mean the DVD service. I love that. It's like a little time capsule. These are two really big things that I noticed. Okay, this makes it kind of dated or there's like some relevancy or it's reflective of the times. We can decide. So the first one is Mm -hmm. TV shows just being really weird about abortions. And this is at the end of season one where like Teresa's a pregnant teenager. She's pretty decided about like, I'm going to abort this child. And then Kirsten, who had done the same thing when she was a teenager, kind of guilt trips her into not doing it. She's like, I don't regret my abortion, but I wish there was someone there for me. I'm in high school. I make $11 a day in tips. Not having this baby makes the most sense. You don't have to make the decision that makes the most sense. Sometimes things just happen. I don't know, maybe this is just me being an ignorant man. I just sort of think like, is that good advice to give someone who you know suffers financially? And again, I'm not saying this like as a eugenics like thing. I'm just saying if she was like Kirsten and got an abortion and then had children when she was ready, wouldn't that be better? First of all, I don't think Kirsten having as much money as she does is really considering Teresa's financial situation as much as she should. But talking about abortion on TV shows was very taboo for a very long time and i think as things move on to streaming services and more private networks and the shows get really diversified you're under less pressure for your show to appeal to everyone and abortion is such a polarizing topic that if you take a solid pro-choice stance on your tv show you're going to alienate a lot of potential viewers and i think corporation wise they weren't willing to take that risk yeah and i guess it's worth remembering the show's on fox you got the Murdochs involved. I can see why that might not fly. Because this is back in the days of like water cooler TV shows, millions of people are mm-hmm. watching. Those people can be vastly different from each other of different ideologies. The sad thing is like, okay, I guess we weren't progressive enough to have like a show like that with that much of an appeal say like, no, we're boldly supporting pro-choice action. Whereas like now a streaming show that's watched by a fraction of that audience, but has some more similar opinions can like accept that. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, this is a much lighter topic, thankfully, but this is 2003's view on comic books and comic book movies. And <laughs> to explain... And nerd culture. Yeah, nerd culture is treated very weirdly in the show's run. It's not necessarily demonized, but there's a way of portraying it that didn't really make sense to me when I watched it. In the early 2000s, before, like, every movie was the Marvel Cinematic Universe, before that, in the early 2000s, we had X-Men, Spider-Man, and then, like, before the OC aired, there was Ang Lee's really bad Hulk movie. Superman and Batman had movie series, but they had really terrible fourth entries, and that caused... Yeah, um, they were pretty campy. It wasn't like, okay, nerd pop culture rules the world as it is now as of a few years ago. But Seth Cohen, we're supposed to understand, is a nerd by default because he loves comics. Like, that alone makes it like he's a lost cause. He loves comic books. There's a funny exchange in the third episode of The O.C. Seth goes to Marissa's house. Marissa, who's someone he's known his whole life but has never talked to at all until Ryan came around and, like, she's into him. He goes to her house to ask, like, hey, do you want to come with me to visit Ryan in prison? He's all excited because he sees in the background Summer, his crush, who's, like, changing, and he's, like, never even talked to her either. He introduces himself, and Marissa talks to him outside her room, and not wanting Summer to be suspicious of, like, why are you talking to this geek? Because, again, we're supposed to understand Seth Cohen equals undateable or whatever. Marissa yells loud enough for Summer to hear, Oh, uh, what's that, Seth? Did you say you need a ride to a Star Wars convention? And then Seth <laughs> says to her, The Star Wars convention? I'm sorry, her top was off. You couldn't have at least said X-Men for me? And I don't understand why that's <laughs> less nerdy than a Star Wars convention. Worse when, like, a few episodes later, Seth meets this girl, Anna, who is this attractive, likable young girl who's also like him, like, doesn't really fit in the OC. She mentions that, oh, I love comics, too. I mean, whatever you think about the whole superhero movie genre, at least it's getting people to read the original source material. I cannot believe that you read comic books. I, I mean, you're a girl. What is that supposed to mean? And I call them graphic novels. In fact, if more people did, maybe the whole form wouldn't be so marginalized. I couldn't agree more. And this just pissed me off because, like, no <laughs> one fucking calls comic books graphic novels. There's comics, there's graphic novels, and it's mixed in yeah. with that 2003 view on, like, comics are for nerds. Yeah. First of all, Anna was very pretentious. <laughs> That's why Seth would yeah. like her. Yeah, I mean, liking comic books was nerdy, and being nerdy, it wasn't as acceptable as it is now. Like, showing that much excitement over non-mainstream media was really just kind of made you a social outcast. Yeah. It continues in an interesting direction from season two onward, where, like, Seth actually is making his own comic book. He's still portrayed as a nerd, but it's actually cool that that's where he puts his time and effort. And then the demonic water polo player throws his plasma ball at Kitchkino and the Ironists, shouting, Welcome to Atomic County, bitch. The last part we really gotta cover, we're really gonna talk about, okay, the OC, so important, so part of the 21st century that this is not just a TV show. This is almost like a religion. This is how important OC is. It's the music. For sure. You can't talk about the OC without talking about that soundtrack. It's just iconic. Like, there are so many songs to this day that if I hear them, it is just that scene in the OC plays in my head. 
Zach Braff said the only song he didn't get to use for his Garden State soundtrack, where he's like personally selecting all the songs and editing the songs into the cut. He's like, the only one I didn't get to use was one that was already used by the OC. So shows you like how big that was. Yeah. The show's use and, and method, they like integrate music into episodes and like you have those moments where it's inseparable. The song is mm -hmm. the show. That really influenced more recent Netflix shows like 13 Reasons Why and On My Block where they're heavy soundtrack. Before like the OC, I feel like the only similar thing you could see that in was like on an HBO show where they'd play a song in the credits and like there there's no commercials and bigger budgets to like use that music. And like the OC... They got the right songs, and the person we really can thank for that is named Alexandra Patsavis, who worked in all the music for The O.C., Twilight, that whole movie series, Gossip Girl, Grey's Anatomy, and several other projects with Josh Schwartz and writer-producer Stephanie Savage. And she said, I'm part of that creative team. I work to carry out the hopes of the producer looking at the footage and trying to pitch the right song. That really was a big influence. Absolutely. I mean, Twilight and Grey's Anatomy, she is incredible because those also have inseparable music moments. Like if you hear Supermassive Black Hole by Muse, I can only see the baseball scene in Twilight. And yeah, the baseball scene with cars. the crack and they run. And... <laughs> those properties have incredible music moments as well. So Alexandra, hat off to you. There's this quote I read that I, I'd like to read. It's such a player in music was the OC that established artists began premiering their songs on the show. Beastie Boys to check it out. You two sometimes you can't make it on your own. Gwen Stefani's cool. And five of Beck's songs were all debuted on the show. And when they mentioned Beck, the one scene that comes to mind is when the kids break into a mall and play indoor hockey and they set it to EPRO. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. This is what Ira Madison III actually said about the show's music, or what it was like using music, listening to music, and like its role in the OC. At the time when the show The OC was airing, you had to either illegally download the song or Google the lyrics, or you watched the episode of The OC and tried to figure out. The OC, they released soundtracks. There were six of them. I know this. I love every single one of them. And so you could buy like the OC mix, one, two, three, four, five, six. And I had some of the songs, but I would sit there Googling, like I'd write down song lyrics while I was watching it and then go Google them and like download them on LimeWire and try and make my own playlists. I think the legacy of that is like shows now have their own Spotify playlists or they'll like help on TuneFind. And so, yeah, as the music world shifts to digital, like, that's an interesting little moment in the timeline where it's like, okay, people hear the songs they really want to hear on the OC. How are they going to find them? Are they going to resort to internet piracy? Are they going to buy them on iTunes? Are they going to find these, like, mix CDs? The fact is the love of the TV show was so strong that people are coming to the show. And I mean, in season two, there was this place that was, it was called the bait shop where bands would perform. And what always was like an eye roll is like, okay, yeah, but they're like actually really famous bands and they play quietly enough for the characters to have conversations. But they had the killers, they had Modest Mouse, they had some powerhouse acts. We couldn't forget Death Cab for Cutie also showing up. Oh, we could never forget Death Cab for Cutie. Do not insult Death Cab. It's like one guitar and a whole lot of complaining. I love Death Cab for Cutie thanks entirely to this show. One Tree Hill copied that model. That's another show that has like some pretty iconic soundtrack moments that I would sit there Googling the song lyrics for, but they make a music venue and have like really powerhouse acts come to like middle of nowhere, North Carolina to play them. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I think that that absolutely was modeled after the OC because it was great. Right. And Josh Schwartz said about like how the show was recognized for their music. Um, his quote is, by the end of season one, we got a call that the Beastie Boys wanted to premiere a new song on the show and Beck wanted to premiere five new songs on the show. And that relates to the quote earlier. And Josh Schwartz said, I, I got invited to Capitol Records to listen to the new Coldplay record X and Y and was offered to pick any song to premiere on the show. The song we picked was Fix You. Soon all these bands we could never afford were coming to us. Yeah, the music to me is my most lasting impact that show has had on me is that I still listen to those soundtracks and those songs often. I think it all comes back to mm, what you say. <laughs> mm, what you say. <laughs> mm, what you say. I mean, it really is still very much in conversation, maybe because of quarantine and people are like, I need something to do. Misha Barton is still asked questions about like, when's the OC reunion going to happen? And she's like, yeah, quarantine's probably increased the show's fan base. And there's even like a class that was taught at Duke University called California Here We Come, the OC and the Self-Aware Culture of 21st Century America. At UC Berkeley, there was a Sandy Cohen Public Defender Fellowship. It was a $5,000 scholarship for a law student who qualified and who wanted to be a public defender, much like our heroic character. There is a fan-made musical I thought was really funny, and the detail I loved was that the actor who played Sandy Cohen, they have obvious big eyebrows glued onto <laughs> his forehead. So... The OC very much rules the world, and you know what's amazing is all this talk about the OC, the show, the location, the characters, the story, and the music. We didn't talk about California by Phantom Planet. That song rules. That song does rule. And I didn't know Jason Schwartzman was the drummer of that band for a while, but he was. I did not know that either. I also didn't know there was an OC musical, and that's going to be my homework for the week, is finding out more about that. I'll be sending you the link as soon as we uh, finish. Thank you very much. <laughs> and California, here we come. Thank you for listening, even if you vow to never see an episode of The O.C. I hope you enjoyed our analysis of the show's brief domination of the TV viewing public, its commentary on early 2000s America, its influence on current shows, and the admittedly cheesy lines that made us laugh. Seriously, though, you're missing out. It's on HBO Max. If you're an OC mega fan and want to hear Ariel and I go over the show's most memorable moments, be on the lookout for Year 2000 Fix's OC bonus episode. A funny thing happened as Ariel and I wrapped up our conversation. I asked her if she wanted to plug anything, and she said no, because what would she have to plug? There was an awkward silence for a moment, but then it hit us. Her dad, my uncle, is a musician by hobby. Years ago, he wrote a tribute song to his favorite basketball team, the Golden State Warriors. I'm no sports expert, but I'm a little surprised that the dubs haven't lobbied to make this song their official anthem. I'm going to play a snippet of it as our outro, and I'll link to the full song in the show notes. Email year2000fix at gmail.com to share your 21st century era memories and if you'd like to be on the show. Now let's hear it for Tom Cohen and the Dubs. There's a team out here in Oakland. They're the best and we're not joking. Balls fall in like shooting stars. Splashing through.